welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Beyond the Crucible. I keep saying we all have little banks of testimonies, and some of those testimonies in our banks are stories other people tell us about the things that have happened in their life. This is why we have podcasts like this, so people can put someone else's story in their bank of testimonies. And some of the stories in our bank of testimonies come from our own life, things we eyewitness that have happened. And when we're in maybe one of those crucible moments, we're in one of those moments where like, man, I do not know which way this is going to go. Then we withdraw from that bank of testimonies and we, we can pull from it hope, perspective, encouragement, discernment, wisdom, whatever we need. welcomed about a hundred guests to be on the crucible since our first episode three and a half years ago. That perspective from this week's guest, Beth Guckenberger, could serve as the mission statement for why we produce this show week in and week out. To provide listeners like you a bank of testimonies from which you can withdraw insights and action steps to help you move from tragedy to triumph. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. In this conversation with Warwick, Guckenberger explains how the death of her father when she was certain he would pull through knocked her off balance, making her question the faith in which her life was rooted. But when she realized God's ways were not her way, that they were grander and more mysterious than she had ever imagined, that knowledge was fuel for her journey to care for the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of orphans through back-to-back ministries, which she and her husband started by writing a personal check and which now has 400 employees rescuing the most vulnerable all across the globe. If you know what you're going to be doing 50 Sundays from now, your faith is not reckless enough, she says. A bold perspective you just may decide to deposit in your bank of testimony. Well, Beth, I'm so excited to have you here. I first uh, met you and your husband, Todd, at a Taylor event. Just, I don't know, back in February, and you spoke a few times, and I was just blown away by your story. Uh, And in particular, you talked about reckless faith. I mean, I just could not get that word out of my mind, because I'm not, I mean, I've done some pretty bold things, I suppose, (laughs) including a a somewhat uh, stupid $2.25 billion takeover of my family's media company, which I guess that was bold, but it wasn't the smartest Mm -hmm. move, which listeners are pretty well aware of. But that concept of reckless faith, I mean, you talk in your book about a burr in your saddle. Um, You've written a lot of books, and this is the first one, but I had to read that book. There was something about it that's like, what does that mean? Because that does not feel like me, but I need to understand it. So it was almost haunting. I know you don't like people saying your books haunted them, but in the best sense of the word, (laughs) haunting. All that's to say, it's a privilege to have you here. And I kind of just wanted to start a bit, Beth, with a bit of the backstory, the origin story of kind of where you grew up, your your parents, and uh, and maybe even obviously a very missional person having spent 15 years in Mexico with uh, orphan ministry and now back-to-back ministries. But as you're telling your story of growing up, I wonder if there's any threads that um, looking back now, you can see how you ended up where you did. But just tell us a bit about a young Beth and growing up and your family and all. 
Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me, both of you, on this uh, this conversation. I I always like to imagine that a listener is sitting at the table with us. When I think about telling my family story, it was, gosh, it was very idyllic for for most of my childhood. I, my parents loved each other. They loved God. They loved my siblings and I. We had only safe adults around us. So I, I, I certainly, you know, grew to understand that there were dark forces in the world. There were people doing bad things, but I never interacted really with any of them. And so while that made for healthy self-esteem and it made for a healthy understanding of connection and attachment and communication, it also, one of the unintended consequences of that kind of idyllic childhood is that I formed a theology around this idea that if you do your thing, you if you do right by God, he'll do right by you, because that's certainly what I had seen. And so um, you know, I had watched, I, I had been encouraged by my parents and I had watched God do some big things, even as a teenager, then through college, we started a, a young life ministry when I was a freshman in high school. And I remember the club leader saying, if we get 50 people in your parents' basement, that would be killer. And I immediately thought to myself, we need to get a hundred people in that basement. And <laughs> we had well more than a hundred that first day. And, um, just that, that spirit of asking God for big things, bold things. I would later use phrases like assignments that outsized me, you know, wanting, wanting to stretch bigger than anyone thought was possible and then giving God credit for it. So I had those muscles pretty well exercised all through college, lots of mission trip experiences, lots of thinking, man, I have God on my side. Nothing is impossible. And so it was just a little speed bump when the year I got married, I was 22 and my dad was 51. He was diagnosed with cancer. And I told him, Hey, no worries. Like we know God, he, it doesn't matter what the cancer counts say. It doesn't matter what a doctor says, like it's going to be okay. Like God, he lets water get pulled on an altar on an altar and still lights it up on fire. There's still like anything is possible. And I, even before I should have, I was standing in front of churches telling people, don't be crying about my dad. God's going to do something really amazing in the end. And the last weeks of his life, he could see that the crash was coming because he knew he was dying and he knew I was not facing that. And he knew that once reality hit me, um, it was, it was going to be bad. And it was, um, I remember the, the moment my father passed, my brothers and mother and I were in the room and all of a sudden you could tell when he was gone. And I looked at my brothers and I'm like, dad just moved like heaven's not a theory. It's actually like an address. And he moved there. And I had assumed I wanted my GPS set to where my parents' GPS had been set to, because that looked like a pretty good life. But all of a sudden the GPS got moved. And I thought, how do I live a life that's based on things that are still to come and not on the things that are in the here and now, but it was conflicting with this deep disappointment that God had failed me. And, um, I broke up with him for a while. I, I, I walked away from my faith for a season. It wasn't comfortable for me because it's really all I had ever known, but it was, it was this like, can bad things happen and God still be good? A pretty primal primary question to ask, but, um, it just took me, it took my breath away. And so, um, when God and I got back together again, uh, I had to accept that he was sovereign 
And if he was doing something, regardless if I didn't like it or worse, didn't understand it, I could trust it. And later I would find a verse in the book of Jeremiah that says, when you extract the precious from the worthless, then you can be my spokesman. That's in the 15th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. I I didn't know that verse, but that's what I was busy doing there in the aftermath, trying to figure out in the midst of something that felt worthless to me, death feels worthless, like that should not have happened. How can I find precious in the midst of it? And it really set me up for then what would become a lifetime of working in some of the hardest and darkest stories around our globe. I I had my eyes now appealed for precious. You know, what's interesting, Beth, is um, on this podcast, and I don't know, had over like 150 episodes or so, we hear a, a lot of really tough origin stories. I mean, the stuff you experience on a daily basis with, you know, in, with the orphanage, that's not uncommon. You know, victims of abuse, abandonment, uh, physical challenges, quadriplegics, paraplegics, financial failures, uh, drug addiction. I mean, we've had pretty much them all. But your origin story is unusual because you know, it was a good, loving family. And yet, mm-hmm. some, I mean, I, don't, I haven't thought of this before, but sometimes there can be challenges when you grow up with a uh, seemingly perfect, almost Disneyland kind of experience. I mean, how could that be challenging? That's every child wants that. Probably every orphan you've ever ministered to has said, has said boy, I wish I could have grown up the way you did, Beth. That just sounds a life I can't even imagine. I can't even contemplate. But I mean, does that make sense? Talk about how, yes. I think you've really explained it. Even growing up in the so-called perfect cha- family with loving, wonderful, God-loving parents, that can set you, well, I don't say not for failure, but that can have its own unintended consequences. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, I mean, for sure. It, just no one's immune, you know, and I I would love to have God have taught me the lessons that I learned in that, in that season and a hundred other ways, but I certainly had to metabolize at the most basic level. Um, do I, do I trust God? And do I really believe this life is about that one? Because if I do, then I believe that God created my dad for eternity and his plan was not thwarted when his, when he only had 50 a little over 50 of those years here on earth, he was still created for eternity and will live for eternity. Am I going to really believe that uh, I'm living for a world that's to come? And, you know, when I work, so I work, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, but I work with orphaned and vulnerable children um, around the world and they have some really hard stories. And some of those stories, those knots are not going to get untied here on earth. Like, the consequences of the choices that other people have made and that they have to face, uh, that they'll carry with them forever here on earth. Um, there are some miracle stories. There are things that there are ways in which you can't believe it, how stories get turned around. And But for a lot of kids, they have to live with the consequences of, of choices parents made before they even got to raise their hand and say, this isn't fair. I think I've been doing that work 26 years now. I think if you were to pull some of the the communities where I serve, I think what they'd say that I bring to the table is a a sense of hope. Like, and hope is a pretty, it's a powerful gift to bring into uh, a conversation. A hope that things can still be good even when they're hard. A hope that 
your questions can remain unanswered and you can still find peace. I hope that there are good days still ahead, even in the midst of something that feels devastating. Like there's a lot of messages of hope out there. And I think, I think that probably walking through my dad's death and the aftermath of that impact on my family, the gift, the his parting gift to me was God is sovereign and you can have hope. And that's, I will forever carry those inside of me um, into all the kind of complications that life threw in the aftermath of that, the adult sized problems that I had not yet experienced. Maybe one of the other gifts, maybe he gave your upbringing, even before all that, you always had hope. You know, we're not going to have 50 people for young life. We're going to have 100, 150. You have, I guess, a sense of hope ingrained, whether it's God-given or parents or family. It sounds like that is something that you came out of the box or through your parents, through God, that makes sense. That sense of optimism, you know, there's probably a few dents along the way, but sure seems like you came out of the box that way, right? Yeah, I do think it's a part it's part of its temperament, you know, whether whether you use the Enneagram or your Myers-Briggs or whatever your personality profile is, I always tend to skew that way. So some of that is just part of who I, how I was made to be. Um, and part of it is, is having seen things, seeing marriages that look like they were, there was no hope for them getting resurrected, watching prodigals come home, watching, you know, sicknesses get reversed. Like I keep saying, we all have little banks of testimonies and some of those testimonies in our banks are stories. Other people tell us about the things that have happened in their life. This is why we have podcasts like this. So people can put someone else's story in their bank of testimonies. And some of the stories in our bank of testimonies come from our own life, things we I witnessed that have happened. And when we're in maybe one of those crucible moments, we're in one of those moments where like, and I do not know which way this is going to go. Then we withdraw from that bank of testimonies and we we can pull from it hope, perspective, encouragement, discernment, wisdom, whatever we need um, from the things that we have accrued. And so like when I think about my, particularly my childhood and kind of early adult life, the way it set me up for some of the challenges we would have in international orphan care ministry and community development around the world is like, kind of make me like you, you tell me it's not possible. Like all things are possible. Like really anything can happen. And when most people tell me something is can't work, it feels frankly like a dare to me. In fact, someone asked me the other day if the, so reckless faith came out almost 15 years ago and they were asking me, so do you think the older you get, the less reckless that you are because the stakes huh. are higher and you realize and I said, no, actually, it's quite the opposite. The older I get, the more reckless I become because I now have more deposits in my bank of testimonies. And I now can tell you with even more certainty that I'll be just fine. And even more than I ever imagined is possible is possible. And so, you know, reckless faith is a relevant, it's a relevant message for me still today. Well, that, that's mind blowing. I want to probably hit the bounce back. You, I guess you've mentioned it a couple of times. You very kindly said it to me. So I'll hold out for people. This is the original one, Reckless Faith. That is mind-blowing. I love the subtitle, Let Go and Be Led. I mean, that is that is just, uh, yeah, that says it all. But um, So before we kind of talk a bit about how you bounce back through this, one of the talks you gave at the Taylor event, I think you mentioned there was another challenge. Um, uh, you know, I know you've adopted some kids. It was an adoption challenge that was not easy. 
And you use the word spiritual bruises. I think you use that phrase, and a bit like reckless faith, it's like, gosh, I think I know what that word means. What an incredible phrase, spiritual bruises. Again, it was just swimming around in my brain, that that phrase. And I think you talked about, I believe, just the experience with your dad left you, I don't know, more prone to be triggered by different things. So I don't know if that makes sense at all. I remember Mm -hmm. something like that. Talk about what you meant by that, that part of the talk, and maybe it was another crucible, if you will. Like a year or two after my uh, dad was gone, Todd and I tried to, my husband and I tried to adopt a set of sisters that were one in three at one of the orphanages that we served. And we were, we felt like God told us to do it. And we started that arduous process of an international adoption and the paperwork it requires. And then halfway through that process, it got disrupted. And maybe if I had been in a healthier place, it would have just felt like a this, you know, something along the lines of this just wasn't meant to be. But instead, because I was tender, I was mad. Like, hmm, here I am again, feeling like I thought you were powerful. You're obviously not that powerful or this thing would have happened. Like, why didn't you stop what stopped it? I now know because of the work we do in trauma training in our organization that anger and all of its forms is a secondary emotion sitting on the primary emotion of fear. I was actually scared. I just didn't have the words to say that. So it came out like anger. Um, then, uh, I got pregnant with my first child and in the process of that pregnancy, um, delivered her in Mexico where we were living at the time and pretty fast after about six weeks after her birth, I got a call about a little boy who was, um, her exact same age and who had been moved from one Mexican state into another and his international adoption eligibility was shrinking And someone was just looking for an American family who was paperwork ready, who would execute an adoption that very week. And I was paperwork ready because I'd gotten ready for those two sisters the year before. And uh, we, you know, kind of sprung into action and felt like God was opening this crazy door for us. And is this what he always meant to have happen? And we brought my son home that week. And uh, he and my daughter are the same age. And it was really exciting for like a hot second until I realized that he had some kind of disability. I didn't have any expertise in disability, so I didn't know what it was. It turns out he was diagnosed eventually with severe cerebral palsy. And the physician was able to let us know he'll never walk or talk or live independently. And while we at that point already were pretty crazy about him, we loved him like a son. It was another pressing in on that spiritual bruise like gosh i don't even know what to do at this point like i definitely not going to pray for healing because that did not work and i'm supposed to trust you god but is this really what you had in mind because now this young boy needs a lot of medical attention that would require us to live in the united states and i thought that you wanted us to live as missionaries in another country so which one is it like are you asking me to do that or this and could you just make up your mind and Again, a lot of anger coming up, but it was not really anger. It was actually just fear. I just didn't know how to say it. Then the way God healed my spiritual bruise, 18 months later, um, my son still had met none of his developmental milestones. One afternoon, um, just started to move across the floor. And I mean, I, I didn't even know what I was looking at. I left the room for just a minute to get a camera to video him. And uh, when I came back in the room, he was all the way across the floor and he pulled himself up on a couch and turned around and walked across the room into my arms. And I realized I was 
looking at a miracle, but I never seen a miracle before. I never even knew anybody who had seen a miracle, but I couldn't deny what I was looking at. And, you know, eventually that young boy, you know, my son never again had any other signs of cerebral palsy. He was considered medically healed, went on to become a pretty tremendous athlete, played football for the university where our children attended. And uh, I got to share his story with his university campus. And at one point when I was telling the story and I got to the part of his healing, the students started to cheer because that's what kids do. And I told them, listen, I'm not sharing this. And the same thing is true for your listeners. I'm not sharing this so that people know wildly personal things about my family. I'm just here to testify that what God taught me is that with him, still all things are possible. Because I'm the same girl that prayed to the same God for two people that I loved. And one of those stories did not turn out the way I wanted it. And one of them turned out better than I even asked it for. And the way that God healed my spiritual bruise is he basically whispered to my very soul, just trust me. Like, no matter what happens, I am good and I am to be trusted. And that lesson I have carried with me, my son's 25, I've carried with me the last 25 years because... There were lots of stories when I would find myself subsequently were lots of crucible moments, disappointments. I thought I heard you. Did you want this or that? Just let me know. This is not turning out the way I thought it was. I don't like this circumstance. I can't control this circumstance. And the reminder of that God is good and he can be trusted has carried me through a lot of hard seasons. I mean, there's so much in what you just said. That is remarkable stories you share in your book, your daughter Emma and your son Evan, and you mentioned looking back that whole artificial twinning that your mm-hmm. daughter is you know, significantly responsible being used by God for your son walking. And that, I don't know if, I don't know if kids tease each other about that saying, hey. You know, Very much you know, so, just all remember, the time. It's all me. Every, every touchdown, she said, those are my seven points, by the way. And I'm sure it's yes, all said in good nature and fun. Fun, and, yes. You know, yes, yes. Uh, so, but that's just remarkable. And, you know, I think what you said is sort of deposits in the bank is that, you know, sometimes things will work out the way we hope they would. And, you know, God is sovereign in, in the way we hope it'd be. Sometimes it's sovereign in ways that is hard to understand, but those drops of grace that, you know, manna from heaven as sort of the Israelites um, had sort of that, whatever, that sort of sweet bread that came from heaven, uh, you know, to get them through the desert uh, as they were fleeing Egypt, those do get you through. You remember God, you know, when God really showed up and there are other times you can't understand, but you know he's sovereign. So it's, those are the drops of grace that help us to go through and carry on and, and trust and believe. You know, he doesn't have to, but he does, which is remarkable. So, I want to talk a bit about your ministry uh, with back to back ministries. And it kind of, um, at least reading the book, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it felt like it all started in Albania. You'd say, well, mm-hmm. no, it all started in Mexico, didn't it? Well, yes and no, right? <laughs> and. You were there with uh, with crew in '94 with with Todd, and um, you saw this child on the street. So talk about how there was something about that event that I don't know. You talk about defining moments. Maybe that was a defining moment that altered the course of your life. So talk about that story. And I think later you talk about. I believe it's about this. The 
Is that the, well, I was going to say burr under the saddle. That's, that's probably a different story. Mm-hmm. Forgive me. Yeah, it's all connected. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, it's okay. Yeah, it's, but, this but, is not a book report. Yeah. yeah thank you. I think, yeah. That, <laughs> I, we'll we'll I, get to that other story in a second. But talk about the Albanian kid. And thank you. I'm glad it's not a book report. <laughs> Even though I've got lots of notes, but still. Yeah. Talk about that. I was going to say, you, might have, you would still pass. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, when you look at your life in any point in hindsight, you realize how there were these inciting incidents that happen that set you on a course that you don't know at the time, Hey, my whole life is changing. You, you just are living the life that you're living, but you can look back and realize that's, that's why that happened. And I think um, we were college students at Indiana university and Albania had been under a pretty difficult government for about two generations and they were essentially cooed and we knew that they had about a month and a half where, where they would be reorganizing and probably shut out the Western world again, and therefore all evangelical um, influences. And so they were asking college students if anybody could afford to take an additional week out of classes and would go for two weeks to Albania. They were just trying to blitz the country to expose as many as people as possible to the gospel. And so, obviously, I mean, as you know, I, I like to say yes. So I'm like, yes, sign me up. So we went, um, he was my current husband, but my at the time he was just my boyfriend. And we were going around to university campuses and government buildings and local parks and telling people about Jesus. And then I think now, uh, looking back, there probably was a miscommunication and there was an afternoon free and they were trying to figure out something to do with us. And they took us to an orphanage and it gave me a sensitivity. It was the first orphanage I'd ever been to. To the idea that somebody, I mean, I, I had watched Little Orphan Annie. I, like I knew the concept of an orphan, but I'd never actually met an orphan. And it was hard for me to imagine institutionalized orphans, like kids who are living in homes. And then the very next day, we were walking down the main highway in Tirana, the capital of Albania. And I saw a, a toddler that was asleep on the sidewalk without a single adult in sight. And I kind of rushed over to that child with my newfound glasses that were seeing vulnerable kids in new ways since the day before. And the translator hurried over to tell me to not touch the child. And I said, well, I mean, he's out here all by himself. Like who, somebody needs to hold him. And he told me it was a gypsy child that the gypsies uh, were keeping kids awake all night long. So they would sleep during the day. And he said, if you lift up his side, you'll see people been throwing money at him all day. They'll come around at dusk, wake up the children, collect the money and stay up all night. I mean, again, I, I I literally grew up on a street that was called Sunday Lane. It was as it was as picturesque and idyllic as you can possibly imagine for a street called Sunday Lane. And I just didn't have any worldview that somebody would treat a child like that. I understood and respected that they didn't want me to touch the child, but I wasn't quite ready to leave him. So I sat on the bench for a seat for a little bit um, with with Todd and with this translator and just just kept wondering out loud, like, are there more kids like him? And does he know that this is being done? And if somebody picked him up, is the parent miles away? And does anybody care? And just just kind of the hardest versions of those questions you could ask. I was just kind of outward processing. And on the way home on the airplane, people were all buzzing on our plane about some of the crazy experiences we had in a country so far from our home, the state we were living in, in the United States. And 
with a people group that a country that was in utter chaos trying to reorganize itself and just remarkable stories we had seen. And honestly, all I could think about was that gypsy kid and that orphanage I'd been in. And what did it mean? How many more kids out there were like that? And what did that mean for us for the rest of our life? And when I think about the story of the life I live today, it very much started on that park bench when I just felt kind of gobsmacked with the reality that kids are treated that way. I feel like in God's providence, that was one moment he dropped in your life. And then I feel like a little bit after there was another moment he dropped, which was the story I was uh, getting the two together in which you were visiting Mexico. I don't think he'd moved there permanently yet. It was a missions trip and you were in an orphanage and you were providing toys and hamburgers uh, to the kids. But yet one little girl did something unexpected with that hamburger. So talk about what she did and why it affected you so much and why that was a defining moment, that that little girl in that orphanage on that missions trip in Mexico. Yeah, we were participating in a mission trip that someone else had organized. And we were painting a wall around a church from blue to green, which is kind of okay, except for the year before we'd been there and painted it from green to blue. And people were just trying to keep us busy. I don't think any, we weren't swept up in anybody's strategic plan or mission. (laughs) And in the back of my mind, I'd never left that gypsy child and what it had stirred in me. And so just pretty miserable on this experience and wanting kids to have a different kind of experience than the one we were having. I said to Todd, do you think there's any orphans in this city? And he didn't have any idea, but man, it it was worth exploring. So we eventually found an orphanage and the director of that children's home told us that the kids hadn't had meat in over a year. And so the next day, we brought enough meat that we thought would feed those 50 kids for a month. And I was serving the hamburgers from off of a griddle right into kids' plates and hands. And this little girl came up for the fifth time. And Todd was like, hey, listen, I don't know a single preschooler who can eat five hamburgers. So if something's going on with the food, why don't you follow her and see if you can find out what's going on? So I followed her like up some stairs and down a hall and into the doorframe of what was her dorm room. And I stopped because where I, where I, from that vantage point, I could see the other preschoolers. They were all waiting, helping each other lift up mattresses. And they were sticking those burgers underneath them, saving them for another day. Because they never tasted or seen anything like that, really, probably in their memories. And I just kept thinking, gosh, I know people who would buy hamburgers for orphans if they just knew how to get them here. And, you know, the vision of the life that I live was born in that moment. Like the the idea that we could build a bridge. I didn't realize at the time that things would flow in both directions over that bridge. I didn't understand. I had a lot to learn about poverty. I had a lot to learn about, you know, nonprofit work. I I had a lot to learn about the language and the culture. And there was still a lot of lessons ahead for me. But in that moment, I thought, "Mm, I think that God's kids are supposed to do something about this. And I mean, it might as well be me. And on the way home, we talked about what would it look like for us to try to do that? And I got back, you know, mission trips are usually a week. I went home and drove my same car, my same job, same condo, same friends, same life. But I kept saying like, I feel like I got a burr in my saddle. Like I'm trying to sit down in the same place. I just feel something poking at me. And eventually that burr caused us to just want to do something now, even though 
we weren't really in a position to. So we decided we were double income, no kids. We were going to just live off of one of our teaching salaries and save the other one. And at the end of that year, sitting on what we thought would be a pot of gold, we were going to ask God what he would have us do. Will we buy a bunch of hamburgers with that gold? Will we buy a plane ticket with that gold? What would he want us to do? And it turns out he he wanted us to go. And so that that one year of a teaching salary basically supported us for a year of living in Mexico. And that's the start of the organization that we still lead today. One of the things that you said to me when we talked earlier, uh, Beth, was that uh, you started back-to-back ministries, right? It was birthed out of your checkbook. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fast forward. Now you have, you told me it's probably, and it could be more now, 400 employees. So from, from a line item in your checkbook to 400 employees, that is, um, uh, as they say, money well spent, right? I mean, you have to look back on that and go, that leap that you took was uh, was the right leap to take. And it's made, um, in, in all humility, it's made quite an impact. Yeah. It, it's again, where you look back and you realize when you say yes to anything, yes, I'll go. Yes, I'll give. Yes, I'll do. Yes, I'll say whatever. You really only see the step that you're about to take. You don't have any idea like, where that step will lead you, what relationship it'll put you in, into, what door it will open. Like you just don't know. And if we spend too much time evaluating of what's going to happen after our yeses and nos, uh, we might get kind of stunned to inactivity. And I found that I recognize a closed door pretty fast. <laughs> so I tend to say yes first. <laughs> and if the door's shut, okay, it's shut. Um, but if it's not shut, who the heck knows what's on the other side? And that's part of the adventure of life, really. You know, Beth, that leads to, uh, there's a lot of fascinating things in this book, but you talk in a number of places about a refined faith versus a reckless faith. And boy, I, and I'm one of these people that, yes, I've made my leaps of faith. I'm one of these people that, um, I don't know, I like to think I'm as fearful as, as the next person and very cautious, you know, think, think, plan and go think again before taking a baby step. But mm-hmm. the only thing that's gotten me out of it, if I feel like the Lord's telling me to do something, I will tend to do it come what may, because I've got a fair amount of perseverance. So I guess God gave me that to balance out my innate caution and fear, which is another story. But so I tend to be by nature a bit in the refined faith category. So Talk a bit about the difference because I'd never heard it described that way. And it's like, again, that was, you know, haunted me a bit in the best sense of that word. So, I mean, this is not a thing that most listeners will be familiar with. Reckless versus refined. But tell the listeners what the difference is. Yeah. I mean, I have a more sophisticated answer in the book, but basically I say, if you know what you're going to be doing 50 Sundays from now, your faith is not reckless enough. If like, there has to be some element of I'm not in control and I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know where this is going to lead. All of our faith fits in a frame, like what our understanding of God, what he can and cannot do, what he means in our lives, what like all of our theology or orthodoxy and orthopraxy and all of that, it fits in a frame. And if we're not willing for that frame to stretch and grow and break and get reframed, then we have a pretty refined faith. And I mean, honestly, it'll get you to heaven, right? I mean, we know what our Bible says about that kind of thing. But what kind of life do we miss out on when we don't allow God to reintroduce himself to us? I'll just read just a couple of the things you say about 
reckless faith, just um, for the listeners. You know, a truly reckless faith, however, always expects change, and as a result, is eager to risk more and fear less. A reckless faith knows there is more to the story, more we can't see, more than I experience. Uh, it is hungry. I mean, there's a lot of incidents that for people familiar with the Bible will be familiar with. It talks it refers to uh, the woman, um, Mary, who uh, used an expensive bottle of perfume to wash Jesus' feet with her hair. So you use that image and a bunch of others. You say, a reckless faith understands the best use of an expensive bottle of perfume maybe to wash somebody's feet. Uh, a reckless faith charges into the sea before thinking that God may part the water. A reckless faith leaves 99 sheep to go after the one. It does not need man's approval or, or man's money. Um, a reckless faith believes in death to do us part. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, that's sort of just that sense of, you know, I think C.S. Lewis talks about that still small voice of God. When you know that you know you know it's him, are just willing to step out in faith, even when you don't have all the answers and all the plans. And that feels like what you're talking about. Is that like a reasonable summary? Yes. Yes, of course it is. And and uh, it just, you know, we live in a world so so full of Yelp reviews, right? Amazon reviews. Like we, we need everyone else to tell us like, this is a good idea. This is a really good idea. You should definitely buy this. And here's, a, here's exactly what my experience was. And I'm going to, you can make your choices based on what my choices were like. And I just, I don't want to look left or right. I don't want to make my choices based on what's happening around me. I want to have a singular vision of what's before me and, and attack it. I'm currently in the middle of a project. It's a, with very high stakes and a huge possibility for failure. In fact, uh, we hired a, a consultant the other day and they said to me, like, what, what kind of odds are you putting on this thing happening? And I said, that that actually does, it's not the point. Like, even if what I'm hoping happened doesn't end up happening, there's something in this journey that I'll take with me the rest of my life. And, and I'm not looking, I, I'm not reckless, I'm not, foolish there's a difference in my mind between reckless and foolish i'm not foolish um but i am i will i i, I will not be held down by the opinion of others and i think that's what i was trying to summarize in that paragraph you just read i want to jump in and just for the listeners pull some things together because you both of you again this this is my favorite part of the show beth when what the guest says the guest's story and Warwick's story kind of align. And um, I found this article that you wrote on your blog from 2021, new chapters in your life and how to embrace them. And <clears throat> you list five steps to go through there. And, and two of those steps are things that if you if you go to beyondthecrucible.com right now, you'll find the same things written there, right? Mm -hmm. What you've just described about not having to have all the answers, just take one step. That's what you say in this article. One of the steps is to take one step. Work talks about it all the time here on the show. Guests here on the show talk about it all the time. Take that first small step. Trust that step, one foot in front of the other. That's what you did. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing right now is you're facing this that situation that you talked about where the consultant's like, so what kind of odds are you giving this, right? And you're not even probably thinking about that, right? You're thinking about, I'm taking this step because that's this is where I'm supposed to go. And that mm -hmm. I think is the is the great 
equalizer in what we have here with the show, what Warwick's created and the guests that we bring on is regardless of background, um, you know, regardless of, of crucible, regardless of story of coming back from that crucible, folks learned something from the crucible. They've applied that to their life moving forward. And that is how they're how they're living their life one step at a time. So I just had to bring that up for folks who are listening in to say, nope, you're not crazy. That's the same thing that you've heard 147 other times on this show as we've gone through it. Someone just asked me, an interviewer was asking me about a new book I wrote recently and said, tell me the distinctive, tell me what makes this message unique. And I said, I actually don't want it to be distinctive and I don't want it to be unique. If I'm the only person that's here in that message, that means I heard it wrong. If right. I get, I get encouragement and comfort when I realize God's told the same thing to other people. And so um, I love the fact that something that I felt um, compelled to write about is something that you all have found to be true and, and may that just strengthen us each. You know, as, as we're, I want to talk a little bit more about back-to-back ministries, but one of the things you just talked about with this big uh, initiative you're doing, another thought, I think you're implicitly saying, you know, the journey is as, if not more important than the destination. If you feel called to do it, you don't necessarily know if it's going to work or not, but you feel certain that the journey will be worth it, irrespective yes. of the result. That is counterintuitive for most people. It's like, it's all about the result. Well, no. You know, it's like the adage, does God care about what we're going to accomplish for him? Again, very brief segue, but in my naivety growing up in this 150-year-old, very large family media business that was started by a stronger business person for Christ that I've ever come across, and then faith waned a bit as the pound money grew, I felt like, well, I know God's plan. You know, I'm a believer, and Oxford Harbor Business School became a believer at Oxford, and Evangelical Anglican Church. I know God's plan. It's to resurrect the company in the image of the founder. It's pretty obvious to me. That'd be a good plan for God, wouldn't it be? That must be God's plan. Well, <laughs> clearly, despite my mistakes, if you wanted it to happen, God's sovereign, it would have. It didn't happen. The $2.25 billion takeover failed spectacularly after three years. So it's like, okay, so does God really care about the size of what I could do for him? Or does he care more about me and my heart and you know, I've done some things since that maybe not quite on that epic scale, but I don't think God really cares about the size of what we do. He cares about our heart. Like you've 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 done a massive amount for orphans, but is there more? Of course there is. You know, it's a drop in the bucket in one sense, which could be depressing. Are there other organizations that do more? I don't know, maybe, but it's kind of irrelevant, right? It's like you can get caught yeah, up, got- you can get caught up in the size of it, and gosh, I did something big for God last year, or now it's going to be small, and you get caught up in numbers and impact rather than, it's kind of irrelevant. Does that line of thinking make sense at all? It does, and uh, I just had a, a large speaking opportunity, and I was kind of excited about, oh, the size of the venue and the, the attention it would bring to what we are doing, and I had a very meaningful experience with the person that picked me up from the airport and that was supposed to be my host for that day and at the end of the night when I went to bed I thought my gosh this whole thing was actually about that conversation like God just that was his plan a for the day the rest of this was just gravy and I hope God did something with that event but I actually think the whole reason I went to that city was to have that conversation with that person and I I think there's there's something to training our eyes to not be impressed with 
with style all the time and be more on the lookout for substance. And he can do substance in the middle of successes and in the middle of failures. Amen. I want to talk about, just as we're sort of rounding out the conversation back-to-back ministries, um, you lived in Mexico for 15 years now in Cincinnati. Uh, one of the statistics in the book that may not be surprising, but for those who are not that familiar with the world of orphan ministries, maybe, and this statistic is out of date, but it's, sadly, it's probably still true. You mentioned, uh, you know, like you mentioned, what, 15 years ago, there were 143.5 million orphans in the world. I'm guessing it's probably larger than that, probably by a lot. Yeah. But then what you said here is, I mean, it's hard to read, to be honest, but it says, statistics say that 90% of orphans go into the black market or prostitution. They often lack family support. And you give lots of stories in this book, and I'm sure others. I mean, it's a pretty dark, depressing world. And Mm -hmm. you save some, you can't save all of them, be it spiritually, physically, and that's got to be soul crushing. But talk about just this isn't for the faint of heart. But talk about this ministry, and it's it'd be easy to get depressed and say I saved one, but there are thirty abused kids who I didn't save. You know, I saw them for a second, and they left, mm-hmm. and I did my everything I could. But how how do you work in that area without it crushing your soul? Yeah, there's some glimmers of hope, <laughs> but there's the darkness must feel overwhelming. How do you work in that kind of environment? Tenderly. I mean, there's a pastor in the United States named Andy Stanley, and he has a phrase. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for them all. There is a sense that you have to just realize, I'm going to do for one. And I hope that in my doing for one, I inspire or encourage or challenge someone else to do something for their one. And there's enough people in God's family to turn around those numbers if everybody does their something for their one. I happen to make this my vocation, so I'm I'm helping more than one. But um, if if we would all have eyes to see, you know, there's a Greek word that sometimes is translated in our Bibles as look, like Peter looked at someone, John looked at someone. But a better translation is like double-taked or look-looked. And I'm always challenging myself, make sure you look-look, like make sure you double-take. Don't like let your eye linger there, even though it'll it might make you sad, or it might make you feel helpless, or it might make you angry, or you might feel afraid. Don't don't be afraid to look look because it's it's when we look look that God gives us His heart and and sight for things. And so, um, you know, to some of the listeners on your podcast who have experienced really really worse days they know what it feels like to have nobody look, look at them, right? Sometimes our pain is so bad that people just avoid us because I don't know. I don't even know what I would do with that kind of thing. That is so hard, but we remember who looked, look at us. We remember who came for us in those moments. And that's exactly what it feels like to a child in their darkest day when someone comes for them. And somebody, somebody cares. Um, One of the things you have on your website um, is this five point child development plan and Again, I'm not an expert in orphan care. You know way more than I do. But I looked at that and I was blown away. It is so different. It's just this holistic. You talk about um, the sustainability of the orphan, the spiritual, physical, educational, emotional, social. That just feels a lot different than meeting the physical needs 
which is obviously yes. important to talk about why that all those points are important to care for orphans and ultimately give them hope and a f- sustainable future. Talk about those five points because it's, it's it just blew my mind reading them. It just seems so wise. Well, in the beginning, we weren't that wise. In the very beginning, we just met physical needs because that's all we could see. And then our language skills caught up with us and we wanted to make sure people knew we were doing it in the name of Jesus, not in our own name. And then uh, our tagline was, we provide care for today and hope for tomorrow, but it didn't feel like much hope for tomorrow when kids were leaving orphanages across the world around age 15, when the government stops giving it to them for free. They were chronologically 15 emotionally because of their trauma, more like 10, 11, and 12 not able to take care of themselves out in the world, finding each other, making babies they couldn't take care of and bringing them right back to the same places. So then we thought education is the key. That's it. We're going to just make sure everybody gets a a fabulous education and this will set them up for life. And so we got a lot of attention when we did that. We were taking orphans all the way through bachelor's degrees in countries where not many people had that level of education. And I was meeting country presidents and it was very exciting. And then uh, we graduated one of our first college graduates, a computer systems engineer. And after six weeks in his new job, he told us he was going to quit because there was this guy who was falling around everywhere and he was driving him crazy because he was always telling him what to do. And I said, is he your boss? <laughs> uh, yeah, he he's our boss. And I realized that this young man had all the intellectual cap- capabilities of performing his responsibilities, but he had so much trauma in his heart. He had so he, he hadn't dealt with issues of men or authority or working in a team or asking for help. And so then we took a deep dive into trauma and eventually that rounded out what we now call the five-point child development plan, where we want kids to be holistically, their needs holistically addressed so that we eventually release kids into the world who are able to financially be independent, still interdependent within their communities and fully dependent on Jesus. And uh, that's, that's now the goal of the kids that we work with at Back to Back. Just maybe one final area to talk about as you've been talking. Um, sometimes uh, we feel like there's so much problems in the world. We've touched on this, but whether it's orphans or whatever area we work in, it's a drop in the bucket. So why bother? Or there can be a sense of guilt. I didn't save that one, or I didn't have that spiritual conversation with that family member. I tried, but things didn't go the way I would hope, or it's easy to just get depressed and say, well, why bother? And I feel like, you know, as the years go by, I guess I have this thought is I'm not responsible for solving every problem in the world. You know, I'm just Mm -hmm. responsible for, you know, Lord Jesus, what are the things that you want me to do? What are the areas? What are the ministries? What are the people? I'm just responsible for listening and, and doing that. And that might mean some might think I have a big ministry, a small ministry, which is irrelevant. The only person's opinion that matters is is God's. And it's not easy, but I, I'm trying to have that attitude of not being measured by numbers. When my book came out in the fall of 2021, Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trial to Lead a Life of Significance. I mean, I was pretty much on my knees saying, Lord, I will not be defined by numbers. If it sells one, mm-hmm. a thousand, ten thousand, it's irrelevant. All I'm called to be is faithful. I will not measure my sense of self-worth by numbers, even numbers of a book or numbers on a podcast. Not that we don't try to improve those numbers. We try to do all the things you can. I'm not foolish mm-hmm. to use your words. Yep. I'm sensible. Yep. I'm a planner. I have a Harvard MBA. I do get this stuff. 
but my sense of self-worth and identity will not be measured by you know, numbers or the impact the world sees or you know, places I speak at or you know, what have you. So, and I'm not responsible for solving every problem in the world. I'm not responsible for solving any of them. I just need to be faithful to what God has led me to. And uh, does any of that make any sense at all? Because I think, so exp- put that in your words or what's your sort of thoughts about that paradigm or how would you put it in Beth Guckenberger? Phraseology, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yes, in, in, in my first language, a hundred percent. I mean, when I I think again, just circling back to the beginning of our conversation, I, I, when I think about what what being in the presence of someone dying did for me, it made me realize this life that I live, it's just it's mine. I, I give it back to God, but no one else should tell me what to do with my life. No one else shit like that doesn't mean i'm not influenced by the right things but at the end of the day you only get this day one time and you exchange it for what are we exchanging today for what what conversations what things have i labored towards what have i given myself to my most important commodity and you know we we've learned how to budget our money and we've learned how to budget our time but the most important thing for me to budget, frankly, is my energy, my capacity. And so what am I going to budget my energy towards? Am I just going to give it away all day to anybody who asks it and we'll figure out if there's enough at the end of the day? Am I, or am I going to think about, I'm going to, I want the bulk of my energy to go in this direction. I want the intentionality of a life that I've lived in a way that um, I've given it away. And I, I can just testify to your listeners that the more I have given my life away, the richer it's become. That sound you just heard, listener, was the captain turning on the fasten seatbelt sign, indicating that we have begun our descent to end our conversation, but we are not there yet. Uh, a couple things uh, before we get there. One, Beth, I just want to be in, in, in full openness and honesty, say to you, um, I'm going to steal, steal the look, look, uh, viewpoint of the way that you do things. Um, I love that. Uh, so of course, I'll, be, anyway. I'll be using that in conversation with uh, friends, very, 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 uh, sterling insight into how to, how we should regard those with whom we interact. Second thing I would be remiss if I did not give you the opportunity to let listeners know how they can find out more about you and back to back ministry. So how can they find out more? Absolutely. Um, they can find us online at back, the number two back.org. Um, certainly we're on all social media platforms and uh, you can find me every place. You can find me on social media platforms. I have my own website, but um, yeah, any, any of those locations back to back.org is probably a great place to start. Awesome. Warwick, you're the one who brought Beth into our midst. You can be the one who asked Beth the final question as we wrap. Well, thank you, Beth. I mean, uh, it was a privilege to hear you at that Taylor event um, back in February and read your book, uh, Reckless Faith. And maybe I have more reckless faith than, than I think, but I just feel like that's so not me. But, you know, I, maybe, maybe it could be with, uh, you know, God's intervention. So um, it's, you know, given me a lot to... Uh, a lot to think about. So I almost hesitate to ask uh, the last question because what you said before was just so fantastic. But the question we often ask is, there might be some listeners today listening to you and today might be their worst days. We often say they might be in the bottom of the pit and 
And there's all sorts of pits that could be, you know, loss of a loved one, uh, abuse, financial, fairly physical loss. They might feel like there's no hope. Any faith they had was squelched. What would be a word of hope for those who maybe today is their worst day? That they're not alone. I think um, one of the things that can happen to us on bad days is we can feel shame and we can feel isolated. And those are uh, dangerous mindsets to adopt that this happened to us because we're not, we're not okay in our very core work. There's something about us broken and we're not okay. And, and there's that shame is very insidious and isolation um, is where we don't get any fresh air into our thinking. And if our thinking is toxic because it's our worst day, it can just make us sicker. And so I would just say to someone who's in a really bad day, reach out and look up and uh, I'll pray that someone is there for you in that place. I have been in the communication business long enough, listener, to know when the last words have been spoken on a topic and Beth has just spoken it. Um, Thank you for spending time with us, listener, in this episode of Beyond the Crucible. And please remember, before we meet again, in the time that it takes for us to meet again, which will be next week, please remember that we understand that your crucible experiences are indeed difficult. We've described some some of the difficulties of those crucibles right here in this episode. But we also know, and we described that as well, we talked about that as well, that they're not the end of your story. In fact, if you learn the lessons of what is being taught to you in those moments, you can move on one step at a time, and the direction that it will lead you can become the most fulfilling direction that you go can become the most fulfilling destination that you end up at because that destination is a life of significance. If you enjoyed this episode, learned something from it, we invite you to engage more deeply with those of us at Beyond the Crucible. Visit our website, beyondthecrucible.com, to explore a plethora of offerings to help you transform what's been broken into breakthrough. A great place to start, our free online assessment, which will help you pinpoint where you are on your journey beyond your crucible and to chart a course forward. See you next week.